Welcome back to Contacts. We are joined today by Omar Sanchez, Director of Athletics at St. Mary's High School of Berkeley, formerly of Holy Names College and a host of other jobs along the way. Coach, super excited to have you here. Thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate you having me on today. Yeah, no, I'll be able to cover a lot of things on this episode, given your background and what you've uh, been through and what you've been able to accomplish in your career. And so I'm really excited to talk about all things, both coaching and now administration. So let's dive in, if you don't mind. What I would love to know is if you could take us through your background as a coach, how did you end up doing this? What was the process? How did you get your first job? What happened after that? And for the audience that may not know, we go back to UC Davis together where we both cut our teeth as managers at one point before coaching chose us. So go ahead and take us through the journey, Oh, Yeah, I would say you actually have a big role in that because as you mentioned in our UC Davis days, I was fortunate enough to be on a really good team there under the leadership of Coach Williams and Brian Fogel and that group of coaches. I, uh, I blew out my ACO that year in spring ball and really wanted to be part of the team. And I, I really wanted to be part of it. And I think uh, Brian Fogel, I really uh, pleaded with him that how can I serve? And he had, he had mentioned managing and being able to do things. And it would cause me to just be in the midst of the nitty gritty of coaching. I said, I, I'm in. And uh, sitting back and being able to just look at how a program is ran. I came from a high school in, in the inner cities of uh, Watts where we were okay. We had Ed Kamayama was our coach and he just, uh, he came in back in 1992 and decided to uh, build a program there in high school. And we went from being Owen something to being contenders. In my senior year, we were ready to go to state, but we got pushed up a division and ended up playing Westchester, uh, <laughs> which was not uh, fair, but uh, nonetheless, we, we competed and that ended up leaving an impression on me because Ed Kamiyama was such a great coach and knew how to do it the right way and really was very inclusive about the people that we had there. I go to David, I think I'm a basketball player. I blow up my ACL and uh, that experience and seeing how players work, Dante Ross and those guys and how they just meshed really well, really humbled me in realizing that I, I have a long ways to go as a basketball player and and then my work ethic, I, which I thought was good at the time, was nowhere near where I wanted it to be. But just seeing how things were ran there in that program was such a, I guess, an experience for me that kind of changed my path in life. Mm -hmm. I, I ended up uh, transferring. I finished my career at Holy Names University, where I ended up graduating and then go right into building a strength and conditioning program there. So strength and conditioning back in 2000, especially at the NAI level, we were an NAI institution at the time. It was unheard of. There was a lot of things that were not really, you know, lifting is going to make my players slow. Lifting is going to do this and the other. And they didn't realize what strength and conditioning was. And so I started on staff with, uh, with the women's volleyball program. And a season later, they won a conference title. And then I went, jumped on soccer. Now, I will say soccer had a bunch of German defenders and South American forwards. So they were good to begin with, but that team turned out to be a, a top three team in the country. Hmm. And so then people started taking notice. And so that's when I got into women's basketball to start coaching under my mentor, Dennis Jones, who was a big offensive mind. 
But it took me a little bit to convince him like, hey, man, just let me train these girls the way I want to. Like I have an extensive background. I really want to, you know, try some of these things. And I ended up coaching with them and we ended up posting the best record in, in school history to this day. We were 33 and four. We lost in the Elite Eight by three, missed 21 free throws that game. And uh, still haunts me to this day. But that's how I started coaching. And really, Dennis Jones decided to jump over. He was 161 and 41 and was having a hard time getting a job at the next level, D2. And he jumped over to the men's program. And I went over with him and we had some success. We had two national tournament appearances, one conference title. And I learned a lot from him. He was just such a great mastermind. I was never an offensive guy, per se. And I had to really learn that. And I was really spoiled with him because... It's pretty cool seeing a coach call a timeout, run a play, and let that play go be executed and always work. Mm-hmm. And I always admired that about him, that he always had the answer. And him and I were like yin and yang. You know how intense I am. He was more laid back, chill guy. And so we always worked off each other really well. And the, the time came where at Holy Names, uh, the institution wanted to become an NCA institution. Mm-hmm. And uh, they gave him the option to be the uh, AD or be the head men's basketball coach because you could not do both. Mm. I was the associate AD assistant coach. I was asked to choose. And so I still did strength conditioning. I went over, I was an assistant for him for seven years. And then that transition happened. And that's how I got my foot in the door as a head coach. I wasn't sure if I was ready. I, I did not think I was going to be a head coach. It just happened that way. And so let's let's stop right there for just a second, because it leads me to my next question. And we'll come back to the AD piece, because that's a new transition where you're at now, even though you have background in associates. So similar deal. You were an assistant for quite some time. You had a background in strength and conditioning. You had worked with multiple programs. You were clearly ready to go. And now you're in the big chair. What did you realize right away that? You need to figure out, even though you thought you were prepared. The X's and O's piece, like how to organize that, right? Like now I'm in charge of a program. Like they say, it's a world of difference six inches over. And it is a world of difference six inches over. And now the responsibility fell on me for everything. Decisions on the program, everything. And like I said, I was so spoiled having my mentor there because he was an offensive mind that I wasn't really that that good. So I was so set on structure. We're going to run it this way. You're going to do it this way. We're going to pass the ball this amount of times. And I think early on that that kind of hurt me as a coach. What I did know and what I was really good at was defending. And we were going to defend our tails off. And we really stressed that. We really stressed trying to get points off turnovers. A couple seasons there, we let the country in turnovers per game, which allowed us to steal some points, which again, I feel like I made our team stagnant because I made them run our offense offensively. And I did not, I don't know if it's trust or I wasn't securing myself enough to just give the reins up to say, all right, you're going to make good decisions. You're going to go ahead and do that. And I'm going to trust you doing that. So I would say more of the insecurity of me as a coach, mm-hmm. higher high approach development, right? Like I created this uh, high performance pyramid that I did it during my master's thesis mm-hmm. of having uh, the key thing with our program was we're going to build a, a great physical capacity mm-hmm. and we're going to build off that. And from that physical capacity, we're going to build mental and focus capacity. And because of where I've worked at, our spiritual capacity was kind of bleed into the rest of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had some structure, but the best advice I got when I became a head coach is that 
you don't know anything your first five years of coaching. And in my sixth year, I looked back and said, oh, my God. I made it through my first five years of coaching. Mm -hmm. So I would say there was just a lot of things there that I needed to get better at. But having a growth mindset, man, I was just so willing to put in the work. That's the key, right? It's being able and willing to put your ego aside and say, I don't know what I think I, I do. I don't know what I don't know. And the growth mindset piece usually comes to us as we mature, which is ironic because when we really need that is when we're young and yeah. we're getting into it and we think we have all the answers. Yeah. So those that are listening, the sooner you can realize you don't know anything and that's okay. And ask the people around you, you will have a lot more success quickly. Let's go back to this piece after Holy Names and how you landed in your current job as an athletic administrator, finish that journey because I want to ask the same question about sitting in the chair you're in now, because you were also prepared to sit there, but different when you move over 18 inches. So take yeah. us through until you got here. And then same question. What'd you realize right away? You didn't know. Wow. Yeah. I've been here a month. And uh, even though I signed in May, I was actually ready. I signed a contract with De La Salle to be their nutrition, their health teacher. And then they tapped me on the shoulder here during that same time. And uh, my biggest thing with life is doing things that put me in a position to serve others. That's my number one thing is I want to serve others. Mm -hmm. And I felt like the best position that I could be to serve others would be in this role that I am now as an athletics director. Now, coming from the collegiate side for the last 20 years and transitioning over, I realized that one, there's so much work that goes into creating structure here because it doesn't exist. And I, I'm on the private sector. I, I would hate to see what it's like on the public sector, but just the schedules are different. The expectation of coaches is different. Working with people here on campus that are teachers and coaches, they have their main responsibility as a teacher. And then it's like coaching is an afterthought at this level where, you know, at the collegiate setting, you get hired to coach here is just, you better have a passion for coaching because you will not last. And that's been some of the biggest changes. The, the good thing is I came in with the mindset of, because I want to serve others, I was coaching players. Now I'm coaching coaches and I'm trying to figure out how to serve uh, them in the best way I can to help their programs, to help them in a sense of development and how I get that. But I got coaches that have been here 37 years and I got coaches that have just started this year as their first year of coaching. So I have a spectrum of coaches with different experiences yeah then add to that like me where you have coaches who you competed for when you were a student and how to navigate that piece so i love all of that one of the things that gene ashen who is a legend in california in the athletic administration space she's at north salinas high school when i had her on she said that her number one job is to be everybody else's assistant coach and from that standpoint it's like serving the way you described it what can i take off of your plate to make your job easier mm -hmm. especially when as you mentioned at the high school level for the most part people are teachers by trade which translates to coaching it actually helps yeah of course. but the coaching piece is usually secondary and if you get somebody that's been there 37 years right that very fortunate. That doesn't happen very often. To your point of the five-year deal, if you can get somebody past that, you got a nice chance of holding on to them. So let's look at this from a different angle. 
given your time at Davis Holy Names, Day Law for a little bit, and now where you're at now, given your work with different programs, not just a basketball guy, even though that's where you spent most of your time, what would you say is the best thing you do program-wise that has the largest ripple effect on the culture you're trying to build? Meaning, this is coming with me and it will always be with me because it works. And I'm going to have to adjust a little here and there based on the clientele, where I'm serving, who I'm serving. But this piece that I stole from over here or we implemented here, it's coming because of the trickle down effect it has on culture. And it could be yours or hell, it could be something you saw somebody else do that you just adopted. Well, let's be real. We all steal everything, right? So it started making more sense to me. I'm an avid reader. I love to read now. I don't think I've ever read more in my 30s and 40s. I've read more in my 30s and 40s than I ever have in my previous life in the sense. And reading's just brought me to this, to having the cerebral capacity to start slowing things down a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I read this book called Training Camp by John Gordon. Yep. And in there, it talks about the microscope and the telescope. Telescope is we see this big picture, and this is where people like to live and exist. Mm -hmm. And that's the big picture. I want to win a national title. I want to win whatever. I want to do this. And they spend too much time there that they don't see success. And what's important here is to really delve and live in your microscope. The microscope gives you the details of how to succeed. And so if we can, what I've learned is I need to live in my microscope more and figure out how these details come into play so that every once in a while, when I look at that telescope and I see the big picture, I can see the needle moving towards that place. But uh, I've been so much better about just living in the details, create a vision. What is the details of that vision? And just know that, it, you know, proceed with as much positive energy as you can and put into it and move forward with it. And so that's what I've brought here. That's what I've done. And so far we're moving the needle in the right direction. Yes. And what you're really talking about there for people that may need to latch on to different terms is the idea of process versus outcome. How do we stay married to the day-to-day process of what we're trying to accomplish, which will then deliver the outcomes that we want versus focusing on the outcome, which gets in the way of doing the daily work. So I like that analogy. I have that book actually at home. I read it over the summer as well. Great read if anybody is paying attention to that. As you go around now as the athletic director and you have a unique lens where you're out there and you're watching and how can I help? What can I advise? How else can I take from my experience as a soccer guy with the volleyball team? As a basketball coach, this is a Focused question. What have you learned watching other coaches and programs that are not basketball that you have been able to implement from a basketball mindset? Press pause for a second on that. The reason I ask this, my office looks out over the pool. I get to watch water polo practice every day. And all I'm doing is, you know, celebrating my coaches and helping, but I'm also sitting there going, how can I do that on the court? So what have you been able to glean or steal from watching other sports? Yeah, that's, sports in general provides such an outlet for people. And 
again, uh, the premise of coaching is to serve others. It always will be. If you're in the business of self-serving, you won't last in this profession of coaching. What I've done in my short time here is I do walk into practices. I want to see the energy level. I want to see how they get the most out of the players. For instance, our, our football coach, that guy is all over the place with his players in the sense of like energy. It, it, he is always with high energy, providing good feedback to the players. And you can see the response there immediately happen. We had a scrimmage against Tam this weekend and, and the energy was just different than what I hear it used to be in the past. Looking at football coaches and how they do things, well, I'm always researching that. Understanding Clemson and, and Alabama, there's a reason why they are at the top all the time. And if you really look at some of the things that they do, you want to be able to take some of that and steal it and make it your own. There's different programs in the country that there's so much information out there about so many different teams that all you need to do is just research. From lacrosse to swimming to football, anything else you learn in soccer. You look at our, our women's uh, soccer team, the national team, there's so much you can learn from them and how they approach winning. And so for me, it's just, obviously you don't want to overwhelm yourself with information because then you get more into outcomes instead of process. And so every year I try to steal something from someone and, and I try to make it my own. And I, that's the key thing is how do you filter that information to make it your own is what's key. Perfect. Cause here's the segue going back to when you first finished playing and instantly became a strength and conditioning coach. However old you were, you can flash back to that time and let us know. But from then till now, how has your approach changed? Not this is what I believe from an X's and O's standpoint, but your day-to-day -day approach and how you used to show up, what you thought was necessary at the time versus now after a long journey in various roles to now where you're sitting at the head of a program and you have to model. Where are you at with that intentionally or not? How's your approach changed? Oh, it's changed drastically. But for me, I, I don't have a pedigree of coaching. Like some coaches have people, my dad was a coach or I was involved in coaching in some capacity. You know, my mom and dad had a second and third grade education. They came here from Mexico to create a better life for their you know, family. And uh, one thing I learned from them is the, the work ethic piece. So I, I never understood coaching. And I grew up in an environment of my dad ran a, a dictatorship household. <laughs> what he said went whether you like it or not. Mm -hmm. And whether we like to think so or not, there's so many different components. Like right now, telling my high school coaches, we're helping these kids be on a journey. We're not trying to be their dad or their mom. We're helping them on this journey. When they go to college, they're going to get a different angle so that hopefully they find identity. But the household, then your experience in college. And once you go through college experience, you'll form your identity. Mm -hmm. So I think when I first started, I, I tried to be a dictator, man, to be honest with you. Was, you're going to do it this way. I don't care what you have to say, which is looking back really bad, to be honest with you. I, I would go about it differently. Now, I'm a little bit more purposeful. I try to beat people to their why because people always want to know their why. If you can beat people to their why, you alleviate a lot of assumptions and questions they might have. Mm -hmm. And so... I'm big on meditation now where I try to meditate to get myself in the right state of mind so that I can approach the day purposely and living in that microscope or that process. Like this is what we got to do. And so through that and developing the relationships with them, right? I, I like that I'm at a LaSallean school because we pray the LaSallean prayer. And in that LaSallean prayer, we talk about intentions. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And I'm trying to get our coaches to understand through those intentions, you get to figure out what your players are going through in their life. Mm -hmm. Because let's be real, the high school coach doesn't have all the time in the world to be with every player and do all that. So figuring out intentions and what people are going through builds on planting seeds of care and then nurturing that relationship to hopefully make it better. So I'm far more purposeful. It's not about me because that dictator mentality, I believe is more self-serving than it is serving. And so in in my process now, I tend to be far more inclusive than exclusive than I used to be in the past. Yeah, I would imagine that Part of that journey comes along with becoming a parent. Part of that realization comes from the energy it takes to maintain that approach. Like I joke with my kids at home and I'm somewhat serious where I tell them exactly what he says. Like this isn't a democracy, this is a dictatorship. And and it's tongue in cheek, but there are certain things as parents and there are certain things as coaches that we're going to dictate. And then there are other things that it's like, hey, here's the information. You need to act on it in the way that you think is best. And uh, I'm a recommending body only. And so I think the approach, as you said, how do you beat people or lead people to their why is the big takeaway where before it was about us. I'm in this role. This is what I want. Maybe those kids aren't on board with that. Maybe they don't have the same aspirations. And I think putting the student at the center of the equation is something that takes us a while to figure out. And once you do, it's transformational in the way you can serve kids, which I know is important to you. So let's take that idea and let's talk about failures. And the idea that in sport, you're failing repeatedly to get to a goal and it's the best place you can get reps at failure, which ultimately help you learn to lead help you learn to be part of something bigger than yourself, but in your path, your journey, is there a failure that you can point to that has allowed you throughout your career to continue to grow because of that moment? Or maybe a couple, but something that was just like, this was a transformational moment for me and here's why, and this is what I learned and why it's propelled me forward. So I've... August 26th, I'm going to be married 20, uh, 15 years with my wife. My, my father-in-law is a very wise man. And when I first met him, he told me this that has always stuck with me. The formula for success and failure is the same. Mm-hmm. Ability plus effort will give you success and failure. Some of us are born with enormous amount of effort and have no ability and fail. Some of us have great ability but show no effort and still fail. The key thing is that effort has to be constant and ability, which is, again, that growth mentality always has to get better. You always have to get better. And so for me, I I would say I was insecure about coaching in the sense of like, I was pretty determined in what I was doing, whether it was right or wrong. That's where I should have reflected better about and, and thought, okay, instead of being reactive, being proactive in my process and saying, all right, look, I'm going to do this and having the the people around me to be able to say, Hey, you know what, if you do that, you're going to fail. So I would say I I have failed on many occasions. Um, I I would say that uh, I look at that formula all the time and constantly am trying to increase my ability. Uh, My effort is always off the roof. And part of why, because my mindset is just that my work ethic is mm-hmm. and, and my ability to meditate and stay in the moment is so much better than when I 
younger. I, I wouldn't say there's a specific moment of failure, but for me, it's just failure is just an opportunity to recalibrate. And so I've tried to recalibrate all these times I've failed mm -hmm. uh, so that I can be better and be able to admit to people that you have failed. And so that vulnerability part with your group is so important. It's one of those things for me where I just I look back and it's just I tell my wife, I have these talks with my wife sometimes where it's like, man, I can't believe I did that way. And it's just like, if I was to go back, I'd do it this way. And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. that's what life sometimes gives us those opportunities of reflection. And again, when we are put in those roles again, to be able to make changes so vital. Well, I think it's really important that you in your current role are modeling that for your coaches and for the athletes. And you happened into the Kim classroom, if I remember correctly, last spring, where now you're teaching this age group for the first time. Yes. And the power of, I don't know, right? Mr. Sanchez, what's the answer to this? I don't know, but let me get back to you on that. The how that humanizes you to your students and your athletes versus when we were younger and you got to make something up because you're embarrassed yeah. is, is something that I would invite anybody to embrace. Hey, I don't know. Let's figure it out together because it's so liberating. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I just finished this Martin Rooney book, Coach to Coach. And it's about this guy that talks about who, this old coach who is coaching this younger coach through through a process of adversity. And he talks about the one foot rule, right? There's a, a one foot difference between your shoulders and your butt. As a coach, the biggest, biggest thing you need to know is when to pat someone on the back and when you need to kick someone in the butt, not literally, but figuratively, of course. Right. But those moments of patting someone on the back have to be deliberate. Mm -hmm. They can't be forced. And when I worked at Holy Names, the Sisters of the Holy Names were great on radical hospitality. And what that meant to them was meeting people where they're at. Yep. And I think that is so important to meet people where they're at. So many times as coaches, we just want people to get on board quickly that we don't meet people where they're at. So then we can really figure out how we're going to make change and then be deliberate about that change. But I, I will tell you, uh, in my younger years, I was more like a wooden in the 80-20 split of like negativity to positivity. And over the years, I, I've learned to just try to be more deliberate about finding the good things because you also have to invite failure into your teams because if you don't fail, you're gonna fail at the wrong moments. Mm -hmm. And usually the wrong moments is in a game or in a game that matters. When I coached, I used to have failure practice. And, Talk about and, that, what is that? I used, I used to walk into practice and tell guys like, today's a failure practice. And what that meant was, no matter what you did, I was going to find a way that you were going to fail. <laughs> and I needed you to fight back and crawl back because I don't want you to accept failure. And usually by the end of practice, it was not only physically draining, but it was mentally draining because there was that piece of really challenge yourself to approach this from a mindset of growth. And, and for me, it helped us in our practices to get better for those situations when we did encounter them. Mm -hmm. that we were better about being in that position. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember listening to Brandon when he talked, he said, closed doors are blessings. And I think the same thing is for failure. Like it, there's more to learn there than there is when you win or you're successful. And are you willing to peel the layers of the onions to ask, what could I have done differently so that the next time I can respond differently or, or we can have more success? So I love what you just brought up there, failure practices. Let's go here. Since we're talking about growth mindset, this is a question that I have been asking repeatedly since I first heard it on a different podcast. 
And um, you go wherever you want with this. It doesn't have to be basketball. It doesn't have to be athletics. It can be whatever. But what have you most recently changed your mind on? And while you're thinking, I would love to know in the last, what'd you say, two months on the job where you came in and you you knew. And now you're like, oh, I used to be over here. Now I'm over here and here's why. But then if you want to unravel that into something else that's bigger picture, that's great too. I would say the biggest thing in, in high school athletics is you have to be fluid. You cannot be rigid. You cannot be stuck. Like I had a vision in mind, but like Bruce Lee said, you got to be like water. And it's so important because things change so much and so often that if you're not willing to, to be flexible on some things or listen to people or figure out how to make it work so that you're not disrupting people's way of thinking sometimes, you have to be willing to, to go with the flow sometimes. And like right now I'm working on branding. I'm really trying to brand the school because it's never been branded. And one thing we haven't done a good job here at St. Mary's is tooting our own horn. Like they've had some really good success in athletics over the years, I would say over the last 20, 30 years, but they haven't done a good job. I mean, our, our cross country co coach, Jay Lawson, who's been here 37 years, he's won five of the last six state titles in track and field for girls. And people don't know that. It's incredible. And so it's trying to figure out, stick to your plan, stick to your vision, live in the microscope, but know that things are going to change and be able to move it around a little bit. Now, when it comes to coaching, I would say I've had a lot of heartache in coaching. I was in a position where it was unique because the number one thing we want in coaching is continuity, right? Mm -hmm. Continuity on staff. Mm -hmm. And for me, in my 16, 17 years of coaching, I would have two new GAs every two years. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have paid assistance. Mm -hmm. So constantly having to retrain somebody. And then when I'm done training them and everything they need to know, they got to go. And that, that was such a big heartache for me. And so I tried to figure out how to condense things mm -hmm. so that it was a crash course on what I need you to do mm -hmm. within the first semester of you being there. So at least I have a year and a half with you and that way we can develop some sense of continuity and then overlapping. I don't know, man, it's, it, the coaching side is always tougher administratively right now. I'm sure there's going to be some more things that, that come up and I just have to be able to go with the flow with coaching is tough because then there's so many layers to it. Your, how you run your stuff, how well you're supported from above, not only personal support, but financial support. Those, those all make a world of difference for me, man. I think the best thing you offered there, if people are parsing through this is be water, my friend, be flexible, because we just onboarded 90 resident kids yesterday afternoon. And I was telling my staff, I'm like, look, you need enough structure in your plan and bumpers so that you know what's going to happen. But you also need to pivot really quickly when that kid doesn't show up and you're looking for them or they showed up, but they hadn't planned on being there and you got to move rooms around. So just enough structure so that you can pivot. I love that advice. Let's finish on this. If you were starting over today, and we're relatively the same age, I got a little more gray hair than you, but you grew up in the back to the future era. So if we're going to jump in the DeLorean, you're going to go back in time and you're going to catch Coach Sanchez as getting his feet wet. I don't really want to know what you would do differently unless there was something you would, because most people are like, you know what? It's all been important to my journey, but I would like to know what advice you would give your younger self to help you get the keys to the test a little quicker. I would say, I used to tell my players, don't wear your cool jacket. 
right? Don't wear your cool jacket. Take that thing off. Shake people's hands, open doors. And I think as a younger me, it's not that I had a, a cool jacket on in the sense of I thought I was better than people. I just didn't know how to ask for help. Mm-hmm. I felt like I should have known things mm-hmm. and I needed to figure them out. Mm-hmm. And so what I would do differently is one, network exponentially better. Mm-hmm. Surround myself with people that I trust so that when I bring these things up, people are being real with me and telling me what I need to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that I would do. And I, I agree with you that I wouldn't change much of the process because it's made me who I am. But that's one thing for me I wish I, I would have done a little bit better. Now, I like that. And I think to that point, that's how the show started. I'm a connector by nature and I got 4,000 people on the phone and it was like, let me just start calling people and talking to them about what they do to help put a digital database of mentorship together for that reason exactly. And I think it's such good advice because when we're young, we're insecure and we don't want to ask for help. But I was at a camp this summer where the director was talking to my daughter's age group. So the high school kids and early college kids. And it's look, if you call the founder of Netflix and we're like, hey, can you mentor me? Are they going to respond to you as a teenager or as an adult? So it's like, get in while you're young. People want to help you. They're right. going to say yes. That's right. exactly when you should be asking for help. That's right. That's right. Uh, so funny how we all have that same cross the bear, so to speak. I lied. We're going to go one more because this year has been so unique. And I talked about this a lot early when we were in the heart of the pandemic and the COVID protocols and what we could or couldn't do. And I used to tell people, I'm like, hey, look, there's COVID wins all around you. You just got to grab them. And, and So what would you say that you figured out or how do I want to ask this? What have you picked up in the last few months when we were on this strange unseen uh, in our lifetime version of the world that you're going to keep doing as we return to a greater sense of normalcy? In the heart of the pandemic, I was actually teaching chemistry at De La Salle, mm-hmm. you know, and how much of a powerhouse they are in athletics. And so seeing how they navigate it and then seeing what happened here were completely two different things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, part of who I am is, is serving others. But for me at the core I want to lead by faith and not by fear. Mm -hmm. And then leading by faith is understanding that we need to create the structure that is not foolproof, that there might be some things in there that we have to adapt to. But as an administrator, I must lead with faith and not with fear. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you, and I I can't go about this telling you the worst of it. I I can only tell you what's going to be beneficial and how we can make these experiences for our student athletes better mm-hmm. now to say that we won't ever have an outbreak or anything like that no we'll navigate through that but we need to have the processes in place so that if it does ever happen that we're not on our heels about it that we're going to know how to deal with it yeah so, for sure no i like that I, yeah i like that i do and yeah um i'm just kind of processing if i want to ask you something based on that what does that look like for you in this moment to lead by faith and not by fear Like, how can you make that a tangible takeaway for a listener who doesn't know you, doesn't know what you're talking about? That's, well, if if, if you believe in statistics and analytics, naturally, human nature is for us to be negative. We process 
what is it, 70 thoughts a day, 80% of those are negative. So we have 56,000 thoughts a day. That's why it's so easy to speak negatively of someone or of something, because that's what's natural to us. We really have to be deliberate about that other side. Mm-hmm. So our players always used to say, work on that 20, man, make that 20, 30, make that 30, 40. And how we do that is it's not rocket science. It's again, if I'm saying I'm leading by faith, I am a man of faith. Mm-hmm. We need to create processes that's going to create an environment that why am I here to serve? I'm here to serve as an administrator, as a director of athletics to a community that wants to have sports. So how do I make that happen? And so I got to focus on all the things that are going to allow that to happen while thinking about what can go wrong. But that's not what I need to communicate. What I need to communicate is why this is so important to do instead of communicating what is so fearful about this, which is if you look online, you can very quickly find what is wrong about this instead of focusing on what is right about it. Yeah. And so ha- having faith in that we're going to provide this experience. If things go wrong, then we have a plan for that. Yeah. But we want to make sure that our student athletes have a season this year. Yeah. And so for me, that's what it means to lead by faith and not lead by fear. Yeah. And I think it's super important is that Hey, we know things aren't going to be perfect and we have a plan and you can trust in what that plan is. And we're going to educate you and we're going to serve and we're going to do everything we can to make this experience as seamless as possible. But there will be bumps and we are prepared for them. Great example. Appreciate you being here today, coach, and looking forward to talking to you when uh, things calm down a little bit here. For sure, man. Thanks again for having me.